This is a commonspace.eu podcast. From the city of The Hague, welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a weekly podcast about Europe's engagement with its neighborhood and wider world. If you like the truth, you need the truth. And I think democracies are just not capable of spreading this disinformation like these authoritarian regimes. Hello and welcome to Global Europe Unpacked the podcast that helps listeners to understand the global trends affecting the European continent and the growing ambition for the EU to become a global or geopolitical power. I'm your host, Will Murray, and in each episode we should look at an emerging foreign policy challenge facing Europe and how the continent can and should respond. In today's episode, we're going to look at disinformation and we'll be speaking to Bart Gouthaus, a cybersecurity expert and member of the European Parliament, who's going to help us to understand this growing threat and how the EU can best rise to it. But first, what is disinformation? Here's my colleague Nina. The concept of disinformation refers to the deliberate dissemination of false or misleading information to deceive or influence the opinions of others. Of course, this is by no means a radical new concept we can find evidence of disinformation campaigns as far back as the ancient Egyptians. In the 20th century, we saw the modernization of propaganda by Nazi Germany, followed by the development of extensive disinformation campaigns during the Cold War. In the 21st century, the Internet revolutionized the information environment, giving new impetus to disinformation campaigns. And the move from print to online news media, coupled with the rise of social media, has thrown oil on the fire. It has provided captive audiences and the perfect conditions for the dissemination and uptake of false information, transforming disinformation into a central pillar of modern hybrid warfare. Disinformation campaigns against the West have sought to sway national elections, destabilize democratic institutions, corrode trust in the media, and dismantle the very conception of a shared reality. They create false enemies whilst playing down very real ones identify rifts and amplify divisions within societies, and create a haze of confusion where even the best journalists struggle to differentiate fact from fiction. In recent years, the West has been playing catch-up on disinformation, while its adversaries benefit from the low-cost, low-risk and high-reward nature of such campaigns. In the European Union, we have seen the establishment of a number of instruments to combat disinformation. However, critics have described these as inadequate, with sometimes little support or uptake by member states, leaving the EU appearing unprepared or unwilling to acknowledge and counter the challenges posed by disinformation. But what are the biggest threats to Europe in regard to disinformation? And what more can the EU be doing to ensure that it is prepared to fight this ever more challenging war against those that wish to undermine its values and society? Okay, let's speak to our guest. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Bart Grothaus. So Bart is a member of the European Parliament for the Volkspartei for Freiheit and Democracy um, and is a member of the Renew Europe Group, which is the 98-member Liberal Group in the European Parliament. Within the EU, amongst other things, uh, he's the Vice Chair of the Delegation for Relations with Iran and is the Chief Negotiator on behalf of the Renew Group in the Special Committee on Foreign Interference in All Democratic Processes in the European Union, which includes disinformation. Before becoming an MEP, Bart worked as a cybersecurity expert at the Dutch Ministry of Defence and so is especially well placed to speak with authority on today's topic. So thank you very much, Bart, for joining us today. Thank you. Great for having me. Thanks for having me, I must say. Yeah. The concept of disinformation can be uh, quite a broad term, but how would you define it as far as it affects the European Union? And in what form uh, come the biggest threats posed to the European Union by disinformation? 
it's always good to have a question like that as starters because there's a lot of uh, disinformation about disinformation. Now let's 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 start by distincting misinformation and disinformation. So misinformation is verifiable false content, um, but disinformation is a lot more. That entails a malign intent in order to deceive, in order to mislead people and to cause harm. And that has more to do with behavior than it has to do with content. So that will bring us very soon to the behavior of certain states who wish to interfere. And that is the problem of today's discussion. What is What are states doing? But the problem isn't exactly just states. It's so many actors who are involved in this information domain. So we have to divide two big problems. The first problem is a chaotic information domain. And one can see it every day. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in Facebook. <laughs> People telling you to drink bleach or whatever in order to avoid COVID. And the second problem is just states interfering and hybrid uh, in a hybrid conflict with each other. And both are... Uh, Big problems, but they're different problems with different solutions and both interfere um, with each other every once in a while. But those are different problems. Yeah. Okay, and I mean, so in the West, the term disinformation evokes connotations of Russian troll farms, you know, Kremlin-sanctioned campaigns to undermine Western stability and democracy. Uh, but are the Russians really the biggest threat to the EU when it comes to disinformation? Um, and, and how do you perceive the threat posed to us, for instance, from, from China? Uh, how does Beijing's approach to disinformation differ from Moscow's? Well, uh, as for the Russians, it's in their DNA. It's one of Stalin's biggest inventions, disinformation. It's one of the inventions that he made to um, to create disinformation campaigns in order to have a political effect in other countries, in his own country as well. And I think Putin learned from that when he took over from Yeltsin. Yeltsin was very weak positioned, but powerly. And um, I think Putin immediately uh, gave the... Um, uh, some of the oligarchs, the great cardinal, uh, the, the, um, the message that he should... Uh, create an information domain where nothing was certain anymore, where there was very, where there was doubt on what to believe and what to do, and he would rise from that ashes as in the phoenix shape that he, he likes to be portrayed to, uh, to 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 get to get the uh, the truth out there, which he would like to portray and which is beneficial for his state and his position and his po political power position projection. So I think that he he he's master of it, and the Chinese have looked at how he's done, and the Chinese would say, "Wow, that's something that." We could do as well. It's low cost. It's low low risk, but it's a high reward. Mm -hmm. And that calculation was very effective. And I think that the Chinese will well will, will think again before they will adopt it, because the Russians might have succeeded um, big time. The Crimea, for example, the downing of MH17. They they flooded the West with this information, and the Chinese probably assessed that as to be uh, well beneficial. Uh, on per saldo capital. But I think they're not doing a good job, the Chinese, not as good as the Russians. And other actors are coming in as well. Uh, Facebook is reporting about it. Uh, Twitter is reporting about it. Many people are reporting about it. That other nations see it beneficial as well. But I think that uh, the main actor is Russia and the main rising actor, and which we should really be concerned about, that's China. So, so, I mean, you mentioned the flooding of information within, within the, the media sphere. Is that uh, specifically a Russian uh, way of doing things? Or? Yeah, good, good question. So, so, so people think that the Kremlin has these buildings with hundreds of people in it trying to flood our information domain, but it doesn't work that way. 
I think in Russia itself, if you know the information uh, environment in Russia, there's extreme libertarians, there's extreme positions of conservatives, there's people pro-abortion, against abortion, almost every point of view is being spurred okay. with misinformation. And people are being encouraged to do so. And some people have make a living out of it. And it's not something that they would say, we don't want that. We, that that's what they want. And then what happens. For example, if Germany, or let me just place Germany here as a front, okay. that the Kremlin would have a, a fitty with Germany, then they would say, what is very sensitive in Germany? Refugees, for example. And they would take some misinformation somewhere around the world, or inside Russia, outside Russia, take it into Sputnik, put it on Twitter, put it on Facebook, put it on Reddit, put it on, and pollute the information environment and and, and, and amplify that, because that, that, that's very easy to do in the online environment. But it's not like Russians are inside a factory producing this. It's also just picking up something, amplifying it in order to gain from it and weaken, for example, in this example, Angela Merkel's position and the authority that the Germans have in their own government. You sit on the, uh, or you're the vice chair of the uh, the delegation for relations with Iran for the European yeah. Union. And of course, there's been accusations against Iran uh, for uh, disinformation as well. Um, what can you say about disinformation from Iran in terms of its threat to the EU? Well, I think one of the main policy goals of the Iranian regime is to make a divide between the US and Europe. And, and, and that's one of the main, I mean, main policy goals that they have. And, and but, but there's one bigger goal that they have that is weakening the US. Okay. <laughs> so both the, both are very much envisioned when they uh, perform their disinformation campaigns. And I think that COVID-19 has also been uh, very harsh in Iran, many infections. And I think that it really damaged their economy even worse. And I think they had an interest, they perceived that they had an interest in bringing about disinformation in order to get a more positive view of Iran and a more negative view of the West. But um, And in Europe, they would very much be interested to uh, reach their target audiences, the diaspora, for example, or uh, E3 nations surrounding the JCPOA or whatever. So there, there, there's huge interest, but there's so many new players on the block. Like I said, low cost, low reward, or high reward, low risk. Why not? It's cheap, it's easy, it's simple. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, why wouldn't you? I, that's easy. If you're a democracy, if you like the truth, you need the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think democracies are just not capable of spreading this disinformation like these authoritarian regimes do. So it's more or less a conflict between uh, liberal countries, the liberal democracies, and uh, on the other side, authoritarian regimes who are very easily uh, can, can portray themselves uh, as with disinformation to, in order to, 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 it's a vested interest for themselves to be more powerful. And they can project that outside their borders in order to become more powerful. So why wouldn't they? Well, that's the big question that we have to deal with in Europe. Why wouldn't they? Because I have ideas about that. Yeah. They, shouldn't, they shouldn't be encouraged. They should be extremely discouraged. And we have to impose costs on them. Yeah, so, so actually that kind of leads on to, to the next question. I want to ask you about what, what would a strategy look like for the EU against disinformation if, if you were to be uh, putting something in place? Uh, obviously, you have uh, all these actors. Uh, they, they're trying to do different things, be it very targeted or specific disinformation or, or flooding the market, as you mentioned. Um, so, so how would you approach this? And, and what challenges would stand in the way of these policies that you would want to be putting in place? 
fair enough. Good question. So, uh, first, I think the, the the approach in Europe is very much tech centric. So we, we we look at it from a tech focus, tech tech perspective. So that that's why we say, well, we have algorithms and we need to regulate algorithms. We need transparency. We need media literacy. We need fact checking. We need etc. We need a democracy action plan. That is typically Brussels jargon for countering disinformation. Okay. And I pretty much agree with that. We need education, etc. I pretty much agree. To be honest, I think we need more of that. But the real problem, in my opinion, is that we don't actually focus on who is creating this environment, who is actually exploiting this environment, sorry, that these conditions that are in place with algorithms and with we all we all know the dynamics of micro-targeting, etc. It's so easily exploitable. But who is exploiting it and what should we do about that and that is a dynamic that is of great interest to me so if russia for example and china and iran and all these other players coming up would see it as uh, the, the cost calculation wouldn't be um, would be the same that's bad we need to impose costs we need to deter and we need to make sure that every time they do so and they start targeting us that they get an incentive a negative incentive and for china that might mean we, we could summon in europe the uh, the chinese ambassador that would hurt him. If you if you would summon a Russian ambassador, for example, mm. Russia would thrive on that. That's part of okay. the game. So you that you, you don't, there's not actor agnostic politics. We have actor agnostic tech centric politics in Europe, and what we need is tailor made, especially against foreign nation states. We need to have the external action service act against them. Yeah, and that also means sanctions, for example. So. We we have so the Europe can can do sanctions against uh, cyber operators, for example, okay. and we can have sanctions against uh, human right violators. That's very 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 soon to be imposed. But we can't sanction people who own troll factories, which will pollute our environment and who would influence elections in Europe. Well, that's something that should be changed. I think if you have a troll factory, for example, in Russia, like Mr. Prigozhin, uh, Putin's former butler, he's very good at disinformation nowadays, okay. but it would be very wise to make sure that he would feel a negative incentive whenever he would set out a disinformation campaign to European democracies, for example. We have to step up our game. Yeah, so I mean, you're, here you're speaking about uh, sanctions on individuals uh, that, that are conducting disinformation, possibly well, on behalf of states. Well, it's, it's also it's also these organisations, for example. So um, that there's a, there's a European NGO uh, in Brussels, EU Disinfo Lab. They meticulously disclosed a uh, Russian state-driven military intelligence-driven uh, disinformation operation all around Europe. And it, it, the, 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 the center of gravity of that operation was InfoRos. It's a press agency. And they can rent servers <laughs> in Europe. Yeah. They, can, they, they are financially assisted in Europe. They can travel freely through Europe to Brussels even. And I was in the plenary and I asked, why don't we freeze their assets? Why don't we make sure that they can't rent a server? So I come from cybersecurity, I told you. And whenever we have a Budapest convention on cybercrime. And whenever there's a, um, a command and control server or a server in the Netherlands that is attacking, that is owned by Russians, hand-rented by Russians, and which is exploiting something, let's say, in Germany, then the German authorities would call the, the, the Dutch authorities, and within 24 hours, that server is down. Yeah, It's being copied, and it's being shared, and it's down. And for this information, we don't have that in place yet. Okay. So when I go to into negotiations in Parliament, I would say I need a similar <laughs> agreement amongst 
the European nations. This is something I know from heart. I know by working in cybersecurity how important it is. Notice takedowns. Take down these servers who pollute our environment and interfere in our democracies. And why do you think that, th- that this needs to be something that's being done by the EU? What, why, uh, why are the member states not, not able or willing to handle this, this type of threat on their own accord? Well, I think member states should be very much eager to do it by themselves. It, it remains national security issue and tracking down whoever does it. It, it, it requires special powers by uh, security agencies, for example, and you want to do that by your domestic law and domestic oversight, etc. But there's also a way, like I said, about who is behind these information operations and who do you want to sanction? Who do you want to hurt? Who do you want to give a negative incentive? To whom do you want to impose costs? Mm-hmm. And you don't want to do, you don't want to impose costs on China. As you know, if, if we, the Dutch, for example, mm-hmm. would impose costs on China, it, 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 we wouldn't be big enough. We were such a small country. Sure. But moreover, they wouldn't buy our tulips. They wouldn't buy our, uh, our cheeses. And that would hurt our own economy, whereas Europe can stand for the entire, for the, we can make mass. And it's mass against mass. That's why we need Europe. But we also need Europe for similar, uh, I mean, best practices. We need Europe for tipping off uh, social platforms. We should need Europe in order to pressure social platforms, social media platforms, because they won't be they won't be uh, intimidated by by a small government like Luxembourg. But if a European commissioner would tell them something to do, they would probably adhere to it. So that we have mass, we have 450 million consumers, the most wealthiest consumers in the world, and we should use that leverage to uh, to, to to gain something out. So I think that you've spoken before about how even um, a, a kind of uh, European uh, media uh, condemnation of, of, of these types of uh, attacks is not quite, uh, is not quite strong enough. Um, could you speak a little bit about that? So, yeah, that's a good question. So what happened there was that a, a European NGO particularly disclosed a Russian state-driven uh, operation. Uh, it was on the front page of Le Monde, one of the biggest newspapers in Europe, but no social media platform acted. Nothing was taken down. No investigations, no real consequence, no effect. Now then, three, four weeks later, New York Times put the article on their website. It put them in the newspaper and the Washington Post did. And within uh, a couple of hours, Facebook and Twitter uh, took took down the, um, the, the Russian disinformation uh, network. And what is, what is striking to me here is that we should have a autonomous let's say, civil society space in Europe, just like the US has. So if our newspapers, if our civil society here in Europe isn't strong enough to enforce these um, the, the, these actions to be taken, then we should enforce uh, we we should enforce it to do to be so. So it's it's work to be done by politicians as well. We need to, to discuss it with platforms. Why don't you listen to Le Monde? Why do you listen to the New York Times? And what is wrong here? And we can't accept it. And and if we're looking at um, kind of EU approaches to, to this information, I mean, over the course of the last few years, there, there have been tools that have been put in place under the auspices of the uh, European External Action Service. Um, however, in April this year, uh, the European External Action Service was accused of watering down a report on Chinese disinformation after pressure from the Chinese government. Uh, the response to these accusations from the High Representative of the EU, Joseph Borrell, concentrated mostly on the fact that internal EU 
documents have been leaked and uh, did little to assuage legitimate concerns over the EU bowing under pressure. I mean, I know, of course, you personally wrote a letter to, to Borrella over this exact um, over this exact story. Um, but how can we ensure that the tools of the EU are uh, that, that the EU uses to identify, tackle and denounce disinformation are not compromised by diplomatic or political considerations, um, it, regardless of what happened in this specific case? Well, that's a very good question. It's something that we have to discuss in Parliament the next year as well, because there's two things at hand here. First is the External Action Service making reports on what is happening in the world, a factual analysis of what is happening in the world. And secondly, we would have public reports, which are all source, but also diplomatically driven reports that go out in the public. And those two should be clearly separated. What the Chinese tried to do is tried to, they tried to water down the analysis, the factual part. And Europe tends tended to go along with that. And, and I was furious about that. Mm. And it was it came out on a Friday night at about 11 o'clock and we were about to go to bed. And I said to my wife, just just a couple of hours, I need to write something. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote this letter to summon Mr. Borrell, the high representative to parliament. And it was very successful. And he was very, well, he was mad. He was mad at it because he thought I was um, making a big fuss out of nothing. But I wasn't because Chinese can't water down any analytical reports by the EU. Sure. It's our own autonomous space. It's sovereignty ever since 1648. Uh, we, we tend to be sovereign states, make our own decisions. So the uh, the, the rise of China was was, was, was on sake of that. But what we need to, to make sure is that we have a division between the factual analysis and what Mr. Borrell does diplomatically. He makes his own decisions, fine, whatever is in the interest of the EU. That, that, that answers some of your question? Yes, indeed it does. Um, I'll go on actually to speak. We've been speaking about state actors. Uh, we did a touch on individuals earlier, but, but whilst uh, the podcast is looking at Europe's place in the world, um, not all disinformation in the EU comes from an external, uh, external state source. No. Uh, some of it is coming from within, within our own borders. Um, how can we challenge disinformation from sources inside the EU without undermining the basic right of, of European citizens to freedom of speech as is enshrined in the European Charter of uh, Fundamental Rights? Here we are. So this is the key question. The million dollar question <laughs> puzzles everyone. No, but this is true. And I've given it some thought, of course. And I think that first, it's like previously, there's a, there, we're not regulating free speech. There's no way that I would be in Europe pushing for that politicians or the commission would touch on the freedom of publishing any content you would like. But, but. That what is offline illegally, what is illegal offline, should be illegal online. And I would add to that, but not more. Yep. But not more. But what are we regulating? We are regulating, sure, we are regulating content. Sure, we are doing it. But not free speech. We are regulating discrimination, hatred, bigotry. We are re regulating this, uh, uh, what, is, what is illegal offline as well. And we are regulating a free market space. There's nothing wrong with that. We have a Digital Services Act coming up uh, anytime soon, and it will regulate the way we handle data, create data, deal with data. And it has a lot to do with, with this information as well because it regulates the way we could sell, uh, like, say, a TV or a bicycle on the Internet sure. through Google. But we could easily, just as easily, sell an idea. And that's the problem, of course, nowadays, to target very sensitive 
populations inside the society with very sensitive messages in order to, for, for example, to dissuade them to go and vote or in order for them to incite violence or do whatever. And this problem should be addressed by addressing the behavior and the intent, the maligned intent of people behind it. And that's why I started this podcast of making a division between what are the conditions that disinformation and misinformation get out yeah. and who is actually exploiting it in order to cause uh, this, to cause harm and to deceive and to, 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 to divide us. And we have to be more vigilant to who is behind it. And I don't think security agencies, police agencies, intelligence agencies are very much looking into it. I've looked into all these annual reports publicly, didn't find real big insights there on uh, that don't have the insight that they are working on it as harsh as they are working for example on cyber actors yeah sure they're working on that and terrorists sure they're looking at networks and people who are behind it and who's financing it and who's doing it and who's an interest in the new attacks in, in vienna or whatever sure they are on top of it but are people on top of it that much already in europe on who is behind disinformation and who has an interest, who is gaining politically, financially. I mean, even Boris Johnson, he is denying, denying a research and in, in, independent investigation to how the Russians might have, might not have influenced the, the Brexit. Listen, from a geopolitical strategic point of view, I would never leave any doubt about it. And I would never hand the Kremlin such a strategic victory because that's what it is. You hand the Kremlin a strategic victory if you do not investigate. And I think it's very unwise of them, because I would think that the Brits, I mean, they are geopolitical strategic thinkers. They should think of it as well. Mm -hmm. And that whenever you say the Brits, the Russians might have incited Brexit, you are <laughs> undermining yourself. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be able for people to let that say. You should be, we investigated that, wasn't the case. Sure. True. We just voted for it. That's it. We did it. That's it. Russians, nothing to do with it. Independently, right? Like the Mueller case in in um, in the UK in the US. Mm -hmm. So, the, so the domestic perceptions of politics are actually affecting the way that uh, states and leaders are are willing to act on on uh, highlighting and stamping out disinformation. Yeah, guerrilla tactics that seem to be working, right? Because uh, the algorithms always encourage people to be provocative, to be <laughs> to, to get people out of balance, to get them extra emotional. That's what works, that gives them likes, that, that's being pushed in the information domain. When guerrilla tactics, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's been made, it's, it's been made, it's, it's a perfect match with the online, current online environment. And I think that tech companies have a large responsibility, but they're not the only one. And whenever it comes to elections before, for example, or election interference, we should always think about whenever you walk on the street, I mean, you know, there's a regulation on where can you put your posters, what, what expressions can you use during election time. Sure. But we have to think about that in the online world as well. That's our public sphere as well. It's not just a private company can explain. Make, listen, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, they have the authority as a private company to decide who is on the platform and how they should behave. Mm -hmm. Sure. But it's not the entire story. It's also a public domain. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to look for. What is public, what is not? What is private, what is not? That's what we have to regulate. Okay. And Bart, on that note, I think, uh, I think we'll finish here. But thank you very, very much for joining me today um, and for enlightening us on, on this, uh, this very confusing often topic of uh, disinformation. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
So thanks again to Bart for giving us his valuable time and insights there. I really enjoyed the conversation, but it's clear that the EU faces some serious challenges with this. Disinformation threatens the principles at the very heart of the EU's ideals of freedom and democracy. And in the same way that our societies regulate certain types of information offline, such as hate speech or advertising standards, as Bart says, we need to find ways of doing this online as well. On next week's episode, I speak to Robert Mikalev, who is a co-chair for the European Network of Political Foundations Working Group on the Future of Europe, about a project that hopes to involve citizens and how the EU functions. We are hoping that enough concrete proposals will be found to improve the way in which the EU works. We shall discuss what the Conference on the Future of Europe is and where the idea came from, when we can expect it to come to fruition and the shape that it's likely to take. If you would like more news, analysis and commentary on the EU and its neighbourhood, please do visit our website, www.commonspace.eu. And also, if you're enjoying our series, please do consider following us or subscribing to us on whichever app you listen to. Um, And also, if you think we're worth it, please do give us a five-star review, as it does help us. Thanks for listening. Global Europe Unpacked is a commonspace.eu podcast produced and recorded in The Hague, the Netherlands. Thank you.